Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This week, slowing down the race to fish. Fishermen's lives are actually at stake. Under these racing conditions, they may take more safety risks at sea. And a newly described cell receptor leaves scientists stumped. Frankly, it's confusing to someone who knows what they're talking about as well, I think. Plus, our pick of the spring's best books. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 3rd, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. About 80% of the world's fish stocks are being fished to the limits of sustainability, or beyond. Authorities need to carefully manage fisheries to stop more and more of them from becoming depleted. Perhaps the most obvious approach is to take fewer fish out of the ocean by setting a limit for each fishery. But some fisheries have gone further, setting a limit for each individual boat or fisher. That last option is controversial. So a paper out in this week's Nature, which is a real-world experiment, unfolds to see whether it works. I called up author Martin Smith to see why authorities setting a limit on the total catch at each fishery doesn't necessarily stop all the fishers rushing to catch as much as they can. Often the first thing they do is to set an industry-wide quota, and that, that may actually put a stop to or reduce overfishing, but it can actually make that crazy race to fish even worse. So people even fishing as fast as they can to catch that quota before the season gets shut down. And there can also be other effects. So fishermen might catch more of of the non-target species or what we would call bycatch. And also we have some evidence that suggests in this race, fishermen's lives are actually at stake. People are, uh, are engaged in a very dangerous profession already, and under these racing conditions, uh, they may take more safety risks at sea. So in this study, you were taking a look at an approach kind of in, in addition to these limits that might help fix the problem. Could you explain what, what that idea is? Yeah, so the idea in, in the modern parlance is called catch shares. Essentially, you take that industry-wide cap, Then uh, under catch shares, you divide that catch up and you allocate it to individual fishing vessels or in some cases, groups of fishermen. What did we already know about how catch shares work in practice? Well, we have quite a bit of evidence suggesting that catch shares really reduce the costs of fishing. Uh, And there's some evidence suggesting that they're also good for the the biological stocks themselves. But there's also uh, some theoretical reasoning that suggests that when you 
put catch shares into place, you might slow the race to fish in such a way that fishermen can then uh, take advantage of new markets. They might be able to sell more fresh fish instead of frozen fish. They might be able to time the market and avoid gluts. So we really set out to test that conventional wisdom. Do, do catch shares really slow the race to fish? So how do you actually end up showing this? It's not like a lab experiment where you can easily do controls. No, that's exactly right. It's, it's not a lab experiment. It's what we would call a natural experiment. We have 39 different fisheries in the United States that have put catch shares into place. So what we do is we, we treat it as if it were a lab experiment. We take each of those 39 fisheries and we match each one to a very similar fishery uh, in some other region that didn't receive the, the policy treatment at the same time. So it ends up seeming like uh, very much like a lab experiment, except that it's a natural experiment unfolding out there in the world. And when you do this natural experiment, I guess do is probably the wrong word, but when you observe this natural experiment, what do you see? We see that on average, cat shares really do slow the race to fish. So we see that uh, most of the, the individual cases show that there's this, this slowing of the race. How big is this effect, actually? Are we talking, you know, the season is a day long out of three months or... It... Yeah, so for a one-year a one uh, fishery, on average, it takes about an additional month to reach that 70 or 80% of the catches. So that's a pretty substantial change, and that's, that's the average effect. Do you think this, this understanding helps fisheries plan for the future? Do you think more fisheries are likely to adopt catch shares as a result of this? Uh, all fisheries are different, and, and every fishery really needs a type of regulation that, that works specifically for it. But uh, we, we feel that, that this evidence really solidifies some of the, the conventional wisdom of fisheries economics that's really been out there for a long time. It, it's, a, it's a particularly important time right now in, in U.S. fisheries management because the main federal legislation that, that governs fisheries management in the United States is, is up for reauthorization in Congress. That was Martin Smith. But does this study convince others that cat shares a good idea? Andrew Rosenberg is at the Union of Concerned Scientists and has worked on fisheries for decades. He explains some of the problems with introducing cat shares in the first place. There's the problem that the system can end up favouring the biggest fishing businesses. And then, of course, there's the soap opera of dividing up their assets. In any fishery where you're going to allocate opportunity to fish like this, there always is a difficulty on the initial allocation. Everyone has history in the fishery and trying to figure out then, do you get 2% or do you get 2.5% based on your historical participation is quite a difficult thing to do and always creates some kind of controversy or hard feelings. And so in practice, it's still difficult, but it is an effective mechanism for changing incentives. So it's not like one study will be the watershed study, but we're accumulating more and more evidence, and that's a, a good thing. That was Andrew Rosenberg. Before him, you heard from Martin Smith, who's based at Duke University in the US. Find his paper and a news and views by Andrew at nature.com forward slash nature. In the research highlights, brain implants and the menstrual cycle on a chip. And in the news, ancient human remains from Mexico. But before we get to all of that, the receptor that's stumping scientists. 
Think of each of your cells as a fortified city. There are walls all the way around, guarded by gatekeepers. When the right message arrives from the outside of the cell, a hormone, say, the gatekeeper wakes up and passes a message into the cell. If drug molecules are to work on cells, they need to talk to the gatekeepers. The largest group of cellular gatekeepers are the G-protein-coupled receptors, or GPCRs. Each one has a special messenger to relay their messages into the cell and send them on to G-proteins on the inside, hence the name. So drug companies try to make replicas of these messengers to activate or block the gatekeepers. That's much easier to do if you know what the gatekeeper itself looks like, and for many of them we do. But some important ones, not so much. There's this one receptor that responds to a hormone called angiotensin. The gatekeeper is called AT2R, AT for angiotensin, 2R for type 2 receptor, and this week a team reports some rare snapshots of it in action. And it is not gatekeeping in the way they expected. Nobody really knows yet what that means for how it works, but reporter Jeff Marsh spoke to Nature's biology editor Bryden Labai for some hints. What do GPCRs do in, in the body? They sit in the membranes of your cells and they allow all of your cells to respond to the outside world. The membrane is there to protect them and the GPCR is there so that they can communicate. And they react to things circulating around the blood like hormones and... Exactly, yeah. So hormones, neurotransmitters, lots of different small molecules. So normally what happens is your messenger will come in and it will activate the receptor. That signal will then be propagated through the receptor by changing its shape and that will allow it to interact with the G protein, which is its signaling partner. So that means that the G protein then goes off and does lots of other things and effectively that's your biology happening, right? And it's for that reason that they're also hugely important therapeutic targets. Yes, yeah, so uh, there was a statistic a couple of years ago that said that uh, about 40% of all modern drugs are targets for GPCR. So you can't really understate their importance as such. In the paper that we're here to talk about today, they're looking at angiotensin receptors. Tell us a bit about those. So angiotensin is basically a hormone, and that's involved in how your blood pressure is regulated. So it's in lots of the major organs in your body, and that basically leads to things like elevating, lowering your blood pressure and, and opening and closing your, your, uh, your veins and arteries, basically. And there are two types of these angiotensin receptors? Yes, so there's 81R and there's 82R. So they're just the two different uh, receptors that both respond to these uh, hormones. What do we know about their pharmacology? So there are already drugs that are being developed for, for example, treating hypertension. So 81R, when it's activated, raises your blood pressure. So the drug that blocks that receptor will obviously lower that again. So that's an obvious thing that lots of people will be familiar with. So people developing drugs, do you think they have good reason to be interested in the type 2 angiotensin receptor? So we know a lot less about it than we know about the type 1 receptor. We know that its uh, implications is that it counterbalances how the type 1 works. So, for example, it will lower blood pressure rather than elevating it. But there are other series of effects that we're not quite sure about at the moment. And so that's why these people have set out to understand the structure. And one weird thing about this type 2 G-protein coupled receptor is that we think it doesn't actually interact with G-protein. Exactly, yeah. So there haven't been any studies that have sort of categorically shown that it interacts with a G protein in the normal uh, way that all other GPCRs are sort of known to function. So something fishy was clearly going on. Exactly, yeah. 
Tell me what they did in this in this study then. So what they did was they took a series of messengers that are known to block the type 1 receptor and they crystallized those with the type 2 receptor. So those allow this structure to be solved. And so what this tells us is that these molecules that we know to block the type 1 receptor, they actually cause the type 2 receptor to form an active-like state. So it almost has the opposite effect on the type 2 receptor from how it does in the type 1. But this active-like state is not like any state we've seen in GPCR before because it causes the GPCR, the receptor, to block its interaction where it would happen with the G protein. So looking at this receptor from the outside of the cell, it paradoxically looks like it's in its its active state, as you might imagine it, with the hormone angiotensin. Exactly, yeah. But on the inside, it's actually got some weird little curly protein that's stopping it working. Exactly, yeah. So the bottom of the receptor is effectively curled round to stop any interaction happening and any signaling happening. From a layman's point of view, it almost sounds like this is a broken GPCR. Yeah, and frankly, it's confusing to someone who knows what they're talking about as well, I think. So this is why it's interesting is because completely unexpected. Do you think this is going to start to maybe explain some weird drug effects and why certain drugs don't work and all these sorts of things? Obviously, this is speculation, but it may well do. I mean, the thing you've got to remember is if this is a mechanism that we've only just uncovered, are there other mechanisms out there, how these GPCRs are activated or blocked? And, you know, what are they and how are they going to impact our understanding of of how these receptors work and how we can interact with them for pharmaceutical, you know, therapeutic purposes? What are the limitations with this sort of study? The structure, obviously, is just giving you a sort of frozen, it's like a sculpture, right? It's frozen in time, in stasis. And this receptor will will access lots of other shapes uh, and interact in, in lots of other different ways, possibly. And so this is just giving us one piece of that puzzle. You know, one of the next steps will be to understand the dynamics of the receptor, how it interacts and what timescales it interacts with. And that's all going to tell us a lot more information about the various different states that it can uh, that it can adopt. That was Bryden Labai, who is as stumped by the structure as the scientists who've described it. Find more info in the paper and the News and Views article, both at nature.com slash nature. We have had a revolving cast of characters in and out of the studio this week, and next in the hot seat was Nature's Books and Arts editor, Barb Kaiser, who dropped in to chat with Kerry. Exactly right. Twice a year in spring and autumn, Nature curates an essential reading list for the discerning scientist. There are six tomes making up the spring books package, and Barb is here to talk about a couple of them. Hi, Barb. Hello. Now, one book involves Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, and the other concerns a physician called James Parkinson. Tell us what connects these two. Okay, so they're both about different sorts of legacy, one discovery and one dollars. So the first harks back to the Enlightenment. There was an unusual polymath at the time who managed to diagnose Parkinson's disease so accurately that his description still holds. He wrote about it in an essay which this year is celebrating its 200th, and that is the essay on the shaking palsy. But the thing is, who was Parkinson? There's a new book called The Enlightened Mr. Parkinson by a historian of geology called Cherry Lewis. And this book gives us the whole man. This is a book about somebody that we naively might consider was at least a medic, if not a psychiatrist. What is a historian of geology doing writing about this man? 
Yeah, so he collected fossils at a time when geology was nascent. And he co-founded the Geological Society with the likes of Humphrey Davy. The reviewer, who's the medical historian Tilly Tansy, relates that Parkinson was, first off, a London apothecary surgeon who performed, for instance, bloodletting and that sort of fairly mechanical medical intervention. He wrote on humane treatments and legal protection for the mentally ill in a book called The Madhouse. And that was relatively rare also. So in short, he was an amazing package, a medic, a radical, a paleontologist, and of course living at a time when uh, Priestley and Davy and the great geologists, William Smith, were all living. So it's a really fascinating book and a wonderful review. And what was Parkinson's London like? Because of course he wasn't just concerned with the inhabitants of it who had, as he called, the shaking palsy. Uh, That was only one of his many interests and he, he was particularly concerned with his environment, wasn't he? The Industrial Revolution was in spate and the air in London was already becoming quite bad and also the water wasn't great. There was also a lot of poverty, and I think uh, this is part of Parkinson's legacy, essentially, that he was some of his clients or patients were poorer or lower middle class, and he was finding solutions for people of that class. So in addition to his work for the mentally ill and um, obviously for the um, those with the shaking palsy, he was, a, I believe, a, a highly socially conscious person. So it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that he's become known for this eponymous disease, whereas in fact he was just had a finger in all the pies. Absolutely. His life and his work and how we remember him contrasts quite sharply with the second population of people that we're going to talk about who are the subject of a book about philanthropy. Yes, so... Whereas Parkinson might be characterized as endowing the world with discoveries, endowments of a different kind figure in the other book I'm going to talk about, which is The Givers. And this is David Callahan's expose of philanthropy and philanthrocapitalism and their impact today. Callahan is a co-founder of the think tank Demos, and he looks closely at the issue of how big money is dispersed. And, of course, there is a lot of big money these days. Our reviewer, Anne Emanuel Byrne, notes that the wealth of just eight billionaires now matches the collective wealth of 3.6 billion people. That's the world's poorest. So these individuals, and there are lots of well-known names there, obviously, like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, in a way wield the power of governments. But these individuals are, are very concerned about being nippier than, say, a government department or a big agency such as WHO. I mean, the UN these days is viewed as a, a, a sort of lumbering giant in some circles. Whereas these guys are taking on, and they are all guys, they're taking on kind of glamour topics or issues or... Yes, exactly. Um, that is one of the issues that Callahan uh, looks at. If you're looking at any one area, for instance, that area will have many issues, challenges. But it could be that an endowment uh, is directed at, say, medical innovation. There is also criticism sometimes that the endowments are directed at diseases, certain cancers, uh, which may cluster among richer people. Uh, This is not at all to make a blanket statement about 
philanthropy or even philanthropic capitalism. Um, Bill Gates has done amazing things, um, obviously, in the uh, malaria and other areas. But Callahan talks a lot about um, creeping plutocracy. These foundations and other bodies run by philanthropic capitalists and their families are often less regulated, and for instance, than UN agencies or government departments. And I think in an era when many politicians, too, are from the mega elite, it's, it's a question that we, we simply must keep probing, looking at. What should they do instead? Does the author or reviewer suggest how they should dispense with billions of dollars for the public good, if not just to give it directly to, to projects? So Byrne notes that former... U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich uh, has said that, or reminded us actually, that governments once collected billions from tycoons, I'm quoting from the piece, then democratically redistributed these revenues. And when you think about it, obviously, this is the sort of thing that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was doing. It was considered a norm in government before. All right. Thank you, Bob, for teaching me a new word, philanthrocapitalism, and for introducing those two books. They're part of a selection of science reads on issues such as refugee economics, a global history of energy, fundamental physics, and atmospheric interventions. Find all the reviews at nature.com slash books and arts. No time for hundreds of pages. How about a couple of minutes for the highlights? It's Science for the Time Poor with Curry Look. Researchers have recreated the human menstrual cycle in a dish. They grew mouse ovarian tissue inside chambers on the chip. Tiny pumps moved fluid through the chambers, mimicking blood circulation, changing the levels of two key hormones in the fluid, according to the human menstrual cycle, caused the tissue to form and release eggs. It also made estrogen and progesterone in line with the 28-day cycle. A different version of the chip contained not just tissue from the mouse ovary, but also from the human fallopian tube, uterus, cervix, and liver, all connected by pumps. This five-organ system could be used to study the reproductive tract and test the effect of drugs. You can learn more from the journal Nature Communications. A man paralyzed from the shoulders down can use his own hand and arm to feed himself, thanks to a brain implant that is connected to key muscles in his arm. Previous neural prostheses have already allowed paralyzed people to move a robotic arm. To get the 53-year-old man to move his own arm, researchers placed 36 electrodes into arm muscles that control his hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder. They connected these electrodes to a brain implant. An algorithm translated brain signals into arm and hand movements. During trial sessions in the lab, the man could hold a fork in his hand, scoop mashed potatoes from a plate, and feed himself several bites. He could also reach out, grab a cup, and drink from it using a straw. Find out more from the journal The Lancet. Our final studio guest for this show is reporter Ewan Calloway, who brings tidings of great news. Hi, Ewan. Hi there. So first, a story of an ancient human. Of course, an ancient human. Ewan Calloway is in the studio. First, a story of an ancient human. Now, who was this and 
Why was she important? This particular ancient human, her nickname is Naya. She lived about 12,000 years ago in, what, in, in the Yucatan Peninsula in, uh, in Mexico. And scientists discovered her, her, her remains a few years ago. And what's cool is that they were in a submerged, uh, submerged cave, it, uh, a nearly complete skeleton, one of the, the oldest, most complete uh, skeletons from the Americas. So are there other skeletons from the Americas from around that time or nothing, nothing really as complete as this? There are other skeletons, bits and bobs here and there. But I think this is one of the one of the more complete skeletons older than 12,000 years. That's what I would say. And now the news is that researchers are trying to unpick how she lived her life to some degree. Exactly, yeah. So initially when Naya's remains were found, they left her there in this underwater cave in, in the Yucatan. Uh, but then there were some... People got in there, non-archaeologists, and started, you know, messing messing about with it. And so the archaeologists decided to to take as much of Naya out as they could, including her skull and some of the bones. And that allowed them to do a much more thorough analysis. And that's what they've done. And what her bones are telling us is that she lived a really, uh, really harsh life. She was a teenager probably when she died, possibly uh, falling into this cave that later became submerged. Uh, she shows, shows sign of nutritional stress. She had a baby. Uh, she seemed to have really strong leg muscles, which means maybe she wandered uh, Quite, quite a long way. She lived a really harsh life. Is there any way at all that we can understand how typical this kind of life might have been? We should assume that Naya was a, was a hunter-gatherer, like all humans were before 10,000 years ago and even more recently in the Americas. And they lived hard lives, you know? They had to find their food. They had to hunt. They had to gather, obviously, given the name. And so I don't think, you know, you'd, you'd expect that people would be in, in pristine health. They lived rough lives. But I think it'll take more, more uh, human remains discovered from around this time to know whether she was typical. Some researchers have speculated that maybe her malnutrition and her signs of physical stress were due to climatic changes that, that were occurring around this time. Maybe the foods that she and her, her kin were used to eating or were less available. And, you know, it, it really put a stress on their lives. We, we really don't know. Let's move to our second story, which, unlike this first slightly depressing story about uh, Naya's short life, is about uh, the secret or a secret to longer lifespan. Uh, that There's been quite a bit of fuss for quite a while over young blood. Yeah, yeah. Nature had a, a feature out on this, I think maybe two years ago. Hopefully our podcast listeners caught it. But there was this kind of these almost spooky experiments that were started, I think, in the 1950s, where researchers would stitch together the circulatory systems of two rodents, two rats, one young, one old, such that blood from the young uh, rat was circulating into the old. And they found under certain conditions that the older rats would live a little bit longer. And researchers who've picked up on these these findings more recently in the 90s and, and beyond have found that, you know, other health benefits of young blood. And they're starting to hopefully identify the molecules that are imparting these benefits. But that's not what I wrote about. Uh, young blood is yesterday's news. This week's story is young poo. The story, the story I wrote about was looking at 
the, the, the gut microbiome. So the collection of microbes are in, that are in the guts of animals. In this case, fish, uh, one specific fish, a, a, a freshwater fish native, native to Africa called the turquoise killifish. It is among the shortest lived vertebrates in the world. It reaches, reaches sexual maturity in three weeks dies in a, in a few months, and it's become a really popular model of aging. But what these researchers did, getting back to the poop, was they asked the question, are there things in, in the poop, in the gut microbiota of young killifish that are contributing to healthy aging, that are keeping them young? And so they did really quite a simple experiment. They took the contents of uh, the gut contents of a of a young fish and exposed them to a a middle aged fish that had been treated with antibiotics to kind of clear its micro its gut microbiome, and then they you know let let the fish go on its merry way and they found a substantial uh, longevity boost from from receiving the the young poop the young microbes that is I think they were living about forty percent longer. So it's suggesting that maybe there's something about the microbiome of a young fish that is helping uh, older fish live longer. What that is, we don't know. So the obvious question, and I maybe can already suspect the answer, but would this work on humans? It, it might. It might not. It would. It's, it's way too early to test this, is what the, the researchers behind this study told me. I think you know they'll want to do more follow-up studies in in killifish to confirm that this effect is real, and maybe they want might want to do experiments in in larger larger animals and animals that are more like humans, such as such as mice. I think that's an obvious experiment, and I spoke with some researchers who are interested in doing these experiments. And even even if it pans out in mammals, I've, I'm still not not certain that a microbiome transplant is something that, that people would be doing to, to live longer. I mean, researchers would probably be more interested in I- identifying what components of a youthful microbiome are imparting this benefit, if indeed this benefit is real and it's caused by the microbiome. So kind of a long way to go. <laughs> so executive summary, you're definitely not suggesting people try this at home. I don't think so. That just doesn't seem like a good idea. At least until more data comes in. Have yogurt. Okay. Thank you, Ewan, for joining us. Find those news stories and others, of course, over at nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. Come and say hello on social media. We're at Nature Podcast. And there's still time to vote for us at the British Podcast Awards, britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. And you can always leave us a review on iTunes. Don't forget that the first in our brand new series of roundtable shows came out on the feed on Monday. These shows are all about the biggest challenges facing science and society. The first is on mental health. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 